to Episode 6, Part 2 of Counter Voices, a podcast dedicated to providing the complex dimensions of diversity as it applies to history, justice, inclusivity, and equity. I'm Jorge Prosperi, and you are listening to Counter Voices. Episode 5, Part 1 dealt with answering the questions why, when, how, and by whom should children begin to learn about diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Episode 6, Part 2, deals with school boards and parent groups politicizing and radicalizing education by suppressing learning about diversity, inclusivity, equity, and thereby the basic tenets of democracy. Our guest is Gloria Lapata Prosperi. Welcome once again, Gloria. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to be able to extend the conversation. Your background certainly provides parents and teachers with credibility and trust to answer some of the critical questions about children learning about diversity. Your professional background begins with an endorsement in early childhood education as a pre-K teacher. You then taught first grade for Southfield Schools in Michigan, and eventually, after earning your educational specialist degree, you became the su- supervisor of language arts K-12 through for the district. You organize yearly summer reading camps at the Southfield Public Library. You have a doctorate in education in reading, language, and literature, and have presented numerous workshops on reading, writing, and comprehension strategies. You were also a founding member of Going Beyond Tolerance, a program developed by public and independent school teachers and students providing workshops using music and drama to teach about diversity. So, Gloria, let's begin. This podcast, given the subject matter, definitely asks all of us as parents and teachers to lean into the discomfort of openly and honestly discussing current attempts by school boards and parent groups to politicize and radicalize school curriculum by suppressing suppressing language, books, materials, data, teaching methods, and revising history in order to suppress knowledge and critical thinking. Can you provide your thoughts on such actions by school boards and parent groups? Well, let me begin by clearly stating that radical political attempts to deny and or obstruct children from learning the truth about America's history is ethically wrong. These extreme politically motivated movements tend to be regional, isolated, and promoted by school board members and parent groups with the intent to exclude knowledge, curiosity, critical thinking, research, and collaboration between students. It seems to me that rather than teaching the pursuit of the truth, they're advocating close-mindedness, teaching fear, ignorance, and normalizing division. These attempts are immoral and they go against every reason why I think children should attend school. These parents and school board members become complicit in both promoting short and long-term serious consequences for the children as students, future citizens, and human beings. You bring up an interesting question. Why even consider going to school for 12 years? Why do we even attend school? Well, we attend school for 12 years, and some of us beyond that, in order to expand our knowledge, not to suppress it. As human beings, we have an inherent desire, 
a hunger for knowledge. We want to know who, what, when, where, and most of all, why. So rather than obstructing knowledge, parents and educators should be mentoring and fostering the pursuit of knowledge, and they should be providing the tools by which to explore and enhance learning. Adults need to promote critical thinking, and they need to promote the tools that enhance decision-making, problem-solving, and research skills. Parents and teachers need to advocate and promote curiosity. They need to help children become analytical and seek evidence for their thinking and beliefs. These tools and skills empower rather than suppress or limit. And all education, regardless of the subject matter, should focus on a deep respect for knowledge and the pursuit of truth. Because as children become adults, they face many decisions that impact their families and their communities. They become employers and employees and citizens who, with their vote, have a voice in the future of our country. Therefore, responsible adults need to develop analytical skills and weave them into their decision-making. Your description reminds me of the fact that many colleges throughout America and the world inscribe in their crest one word that stands out, most often in Latin, veritas, V-E-R-I-T-A-S. It means the truth. Harvard University has one single word on its crest, veritas. The University of Michigan has three words, artes, scientia, and veritas. It's, it's nice to see artes and science and knowledge along with veritas. That said, you advocate pursuit of the truth that can lead to personal introspection. That is, to questions one thinking, language, beliefs, and values. Are schools responsible for teaching such personal skills? Absolutely. Parents and teachers should provide tools that emphasize the pursuit of knowledge and reasoning. Kids want and seek advice. They seek mentorship and guidance. And they need to trust that what we are teaching them is the truth. We have to think of young kids as being apprentices for a good portion of their lives. And we as adults are the teachers, mentors, advisors, confidants, and counselors. Each of these roles deals with two major principles, and those are credibility and trust. Let me pause on credibility and trust. Both certainly depend on the truth. Currently, the essence of the truth is being challenged with blatant lies and misinformation. How do parents and teachers deal when history is politicized with denials and when history is revised? Major examples of revisionism in 2022 are slavery, colonization, and the Holocaust. The three major revisions being that slavery was not that bad. Colonization, justified by state and God, and that the Holocaust and genocide never happened. Well, what you bring up is a current serious and very dangerous political strategy that centers around repeating lies in order to create doubt, suspicion, and eventually chaos. It's an old playbook by autocrats and autocratic ideologies. 
Slavery and the fact that the southern states fought a civil war, resulting in the loss of some 620,000 deaths, is a fact that cannot be romanticized. Colonialism throughout the world was cataclysmic to Native people, and the Holocaust was a catastrophic, inhumane slaughter engineered by the autocratic ideology of Nazism and fascism. All of these events happened over years and centuries, and they're documented. To create lies and denials about these events are rooted and based in the pathology of racism, anti-Semitism, and xenophobia. And another truth that should not be denied or avoided is the connection and dramatic increase in the rise of hate groups, anti-Semitism, and white nationalism. For a politician or political party to continue to spew misinformation on social media and during their campaigns is their choice. But teachers don't have that choice or right, intellectually or morally. All knowledge must be fact-based. We can have a discussion on the reasons for slavery, colonialism, religious and political genocide, But the reality of such horrific events occurring worldwide and in America should not ever be questioned or whitewashed. Students need to know why these horrific events occurred, and most importantly, how are they going to be avoided in the future? So how do teachers deal with such a challenge? Well, telling the truth about our history should not be a challenge, but simply the right thing to do by parents and teachers. Children depend on it. Their future as citizens depend on the truth. So teaching history is a matter of not only teaching content, but historical context and backstories and providing references and research. What you are referring to is actually having children thinking about how they think, thinking about their thinking. Do I have that correct? Yes, absolutely. This is a strategy that should be introduced by teachers at the earliest of ages. This teachable skill is called metacognition, or as you described it, thinking about our thinking. And it can play a major role in growth and development because thinking about our thinking deals with how we reason, analyze, and anticipate outcomes so that we can avoid regrets and consequences. Thinking about our thinking can lead to believing that there are alternatives rather than just one absolute outcome. We need to encourage kids to dig deeper in order to solve problems rather than deny reasons for the problems or even worse, blame others for them. Also, metacognition can lead to self-reflection, the pursuit of new ideas, and it allows imagination and creativity to flourish. Self-awareness can provide resiliency, persistence, confidence, and most of all, hope. How can parents and teachers assist in developing such skills and processes? Well, as children grow older, it's important to take time to explain rather than ignore or avoid difficult questions that may arise. Parents should speak up when bias and prejudice happens. They need to discuss current events at age-appropriate levels with the help of available resources 
And we as adults need to provide clarification as to what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, the language we use should be scrutinized. Language that's hostile, like name-calling, bullying, or language that promotes division and violence should be addressed immediately and without mincing words. We need to not only teach children what is unacceptable, but we also have to model acceptable language and behavior. For example, it's inevitable that youngsters will hear about school shootings or even know someone who is a victim of gun violence. They're aware because even kids in pre-K and elementary school practice active shooter drills. They increasingly hear terms such as insurrection, gun violence, hate crimes, white supremacy, and even domestic terrorism. Kids want to know about these events, and they depend on adults to tell them the truth. One key question. So what, to what extent, rather, is age and grade appropriateness a factor? It's always a factor. As often mentioned, the language we use to explain and provide comprehension is crucial. So that means we need to do some homework. Difficult conversations with our children is not a time to politicize or radicalize explanations with our personal prejudices and predispositions at home or at school. We have to help our kids feel safe and secure rather than internalize confusion, anxiety, and fear. We must also listen to what the children are observing and hearing and they need to believe that they have a voice and that we will listen rather than silence or dismiss them. So our role as adults is to make children feel safe and secure. Teachers, actually all school personnel, should be on the same page with parents and attempts to divide rather than to solve problems together. It only results in confusion, anxiety, and chaos. So one way to make children feel secure is by maintaining routines because there's security and the predictability of activities. And we can help them with strategies that help make them feel safe. We can do this by sharing books that can be very helpful even at the youngest of ages. One book is Once I Was Very, Very Scared by Chandra Ippen. And this is a story of how different animals coped with scary situations. These conversations may need to take place more than once in order to release anxiety. And also shifting the focus to first responders and the heroes who rush in to help others is a good way to redirect feelings. Focusing on positive, diverse role models who have demonstrated integrity, dignity, selflessness, Moral principles and nobleness should always be shared and made available. And older kids can redirect their anxieties and fears by becoming advocates for gun safety. Children want to make sense out of the tragic occurrences and ask why do such acts of violence occur? Who's responsible? How come it doesn't stop? Do you think that we tend to underestimate the awareness and ability of young children to handle difficult topics such as racism and prejudices. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. 
children have the capacity and the curiosity to learn and understand difficult concepts through an array of resources. The knowledge should be presented logically, with reason, and with examples of how it impacts their life and the lives of others. And encouraging the use of critical thinking enhances learning as the children get older. The more they research collaboratively, the less a mystery the subject becomes. Working together to solve problems should be emphasized. Classroom discussions presenting different perspectives based on data and opportunities to ask questions is always valuable and always should be encouraged. A critical question that educators have always struggled with is whether they should remain neutral on subjects like diversity, equity, inclusivity, social justice, and even democracy. How do teachers navigate this challenge as educators? Well, first of all, I think it's very smart to review the reasons why teachers become members of our noble profession. Educators need to ask and answer two critical questions each day they enter their classrooms. The first is the reasons why they are there, and the second is what legacy do they want to leave behind? Are they there to promote the love of learning, curiosity, research, critical thinking, and the pursuit of the truth? Do they promote citizenship and democracy? Do they become change agents, or do they remain neutral, or worse, become accessories to the political ideologies that use parents and students as pawns? Well, let me challenge you. Did you answer such questions during your journey as an elementary teacher and administrator? Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I faced these kinds of questions and challenges as a reading clinician early in my career upon presenting the idea, along with our special ed teacher and a first grade teacher, of incorporating her first grade special education class with a general education teacher's classroom for different parts of the school day. At the time, this was thought to be highly controversial by some parents and teachers. But my principal not only agreed with the concept, but she encouraged it. This is when leadership, collaboration, and moral courage took place. Our principal actually had a door put in the wall between a first grade classroom and the special education classroom so the kids would have easy access by joining each of the classrooms for various lessons. Both the special ed teacher and I had to rethink our traditional thinking, work together, and move towards new ideas and strategies. But in the end, it made all of us better. A major outcome was that all the children felt that they belonged. And all children learned empathy, compassion, and they developed the ability to interact with all of their peers. It wasn't easy. The community needed to be educated, but it was absolutely the right thing to do. Another example is when there came a time when I objected to having my class participate in the Columbus Day celebrations. I felt it wasn't an honest celebration because of what Columbus truly represents. I felt an obligation to change the focus from contrived images and narratives of Columbus as a hero to a more honest discussion of how Native people were made invisible 
and the consequences of colonialism. A discussion on viewing and respecting people who are different from us followed that. And that learning curve did not shame or blame, but rather it told the truth about the encounter between Europeans and the Native people. How did your peers and parents react to such advocacy? Well, some teachers were unnerved, viewing it as an affront to their identity and their culture and a threat to change their yearly Thanksgiving lesson plans. But some became curious and aware, and some followed the example by shifting the emphasis to Native people, acknowledging that Native people had languages, traditions, values, and culture, and that while there were many, many different tribes, each Native child and adult was a human being whose ancestors were here, and that their languages, culture, customs, and spirituality were established long before Europeans ever arrived. So there are many opportunities to prevent diversity to children in schools. Some ideas are inviting guests and parents to read to children to discuss various cultures and holidays. We can teach children just how to say hello and goodbye in various language. And we can teach songs and dances reflecting a variety of populations. Also displaying and discussing various types of art and making that art available throughout the school. Because a major goal is to provide rich learning opportunities for the entire school community with a focus on inclusivity. It seems that a major priority is the motivation and advocacy of the individual teacher to move in such directions. Yes. As always, it's the imagination, creativity, professional development, and the courage of the classroom teacher that always, always matters. This development is first grounded in self-awareness and being comfortable with difference. It always means becoming educated as to what is most currently available, developmentally appropriate, and finding those resources to collect and provide children with an array of books reflecting inclusivity. It also means collaborating with other teachers in the district between age and grade levels. Also collaborating with teachers across town or even across oceans because modern technology makes all of these types of connections possible and available now. Keep in mind, children's books on diversity are being published now more than ever. So therefore, teachers need to remain aware of what is current and take advantage of it. What are the consequences when children are denied at home and at school opportunities to learn about diversity and inclusivity? Well, that's an excellent question because the consequences have become increasingly much more serious, life-altering, and tragic. First of all, upon leaving home and school, the realities of life begin to unfold and society begins to provide a multitude of lenses through which to view our world. And as we zoom out from our regional nests, we quickly learn that our zip code is just one of many. And as adults, we begin to experience different values, behaviors, responsibilities, beliefs, and ideologies. And a consequence of being subjected to anti-knowledge, anti-fact-finding, and anti-reasoning 
is feeling isolated and uninformed and uneducated. And this leads to low-information citizens who begin to confirm their beliefs in what are called echo chambers, echoing segregated and isolated beliefs. I actually cringe when I hear the terms low-information and misinformation voters or being anti-intelligence, anti-literature, and anti-science. I cannot believe that any parent or teacher or citizen, any human being, would want to be characterized this way. We're all students and learners throughout our entire lives, and therefore, we're all pursuers of knowledge. Would you say that there are generational variables involved? Oh, yes. As adults, we begin to notice that not everyone thinks alike and that many of the differences are generational. For example, the three current generations are highly diverse and mobile. They move from region, state, and from one profession to another. They exponentially experience differences and otherness on a personal basis. Life in the 21st century for young adults does not remain cloistered or absolute or limited, and change is a major reality. So as kids journey from adolescence to adulthood, they're influenced by acquaintances and friendships and professional relationships that are, in today's world, unavoidably bicultural, bilingual, and biracial. They apply for jobs and corporations and businesses that have a vision, mission, and guiding principles promoting and respecting diversity, inclusivity, and equity. In other words, they notice that they're living in a highly diverse world of the 21st century. And the latest research affirms that corporations, businesses, and colleges expect students graduating from high school to be equipped with critical thinking skills, to be able to research knowledge bases, solve problems collaboratively, and be astutely aware and comfortable with diversity and inclusivity. Students seeking employment quickly learn that the real world is dynamic, not static, and that they will be required to deal with diversity, inclusivity, and ongoing changes. It's interesting, Gloria, that while teaching college diversity courses, I often heard undergrad and grad students resent the fact that while in elementary, junior high, and high school, they never learned about the layers of diversity, inclusivity, equity, associated with the Constitution, Declaration of Independence, and basic knowledge on racism, sexism, and xenophobia. Some students share that in their high school, such topics were studied and discussed only in honors courses, advanced placement courses, and international baccalaureate courses. They felt disrespected and cheated. You know, I heard the same regrets and concerns from adults during workshops, that schools didn't provide opportunities to learn and discuss diversity, inclusivity, and equity. These learning opportunities should not be left only to students taking advanced courses, as if other students weren't able to understand or deserve uh, the opportunity to research or hear debates and discussions that can lead to civil and meaningful discourse. Each and every student should be involved in learning about diversity, its relationship to inclusivity, 
democracy and how it applies and connects us as human beings. These courses and topics should not be left, <clears throat> excuse me, to deal with only at the college level where courses may or may not be offered or required. Therefore, when we limit knowledge, we also limit opportunities in the future for kids to feel confident and comfortable to discuss these kinds of difficult subjects. Can you speak to how limiting, isolating, and avoiding teaching about diversity and and inclusivity can lead to extremism and serious criminal consequences? Well, the most recent prosecutions of insurrectionists, white supremacists, criminals of hate crimes, and indictments of political leaders speak for itself as to real consequences. Parents and teachers are getting a reality check that keeping children hostages by denialism, revised historical accounts, promoting divisiveness, and aligning with extreme white right-wing narratives of white supremacy, joining hate groups and doubling down on conspiracy theories, can only result in ruptured lives. The current problem is only exacerbated by local politicians and legislators and special interest groups that troll parents and students. They do this from a comfortable distance supporting and associating with hate groups in order to gain favor during voting cycles, promoting grievance politics, anti-immigration fear-mongering, replacement theories, white supremacy, and by going after school boards and teachers in order to alter their curriculum. And the most vulnerable victims are, unfortunately, the young, who are recruited during high, junior high school and high school years. And the seeds of viewing difference as the enemy are planted early on and are fueled by political and radical ideologies that prey on the young without regard for eventual catastrophic outcomes for victims and victimizers. The tenets of the ideology of hate has a language and a belief system that imprisons rather than liberates. And a child should not be predisposed at home or at school to prejudices and absolute thinking that can eventually lead to their self-oppression. What would you say to parents, teachers, and school boards that are banning books and methods from all grades because they feel that language and topics associated with diversity, slavery, colonialism, racism, and social phobias traumatize children by blaming and shaming them. Well, as we've said over and over again, it is not our job to shield or hide our children from the truth. Yes, it should be done keeping in mind age and grade appropriateness, However, we should not be revising history. What occurred in the past may not be pleasant. It even can be thought of as inhumane, but nevertheless it happened. And children need to hear the truth. It is a cruel injustice to keep the truth from children. It cheats them out of learning experiences that can help them become responsible, intelligent adults and citizens who will be able to discuss these kinds of realities without fear. And banning books denies them resources and references that can help them deal with the challenges that may confront them in the future. 
Keeping the truth from young students is an insult to their intelligence and their citizenship. What do you think is and will be the impact on our society, culture, and politics by students who embrace rather than fear inclusivity? Is there hope for future generations? Absolutely. The impact and the hope was expressed in the 2022 midterm elections. We all experienced it in real time. We can't deny the reality that millennials born, the Gen Zers, and the current generation of students see themselves as global citizens rather than Republicans or Democrats or independents, but rather they see themselves as advocates who acknowledge and accept difference. They step across multicultural boundaries, becoming future beacons and advocates for social justice, equity, access to voting, protecting our environment, eliminating gun violence, and having mutual respect for gender identity and sexual orientation. Our democracy provides the guiding principles by which to address their platform and ideology. Current generations are tired of antiquated political contrived narratives and special interest groups ruling their futures. They care about enhancing the quality of life of all human beings. The impact on society is that knowledgeable children become knowledgeable adults and voters. And these young adults are getting involved and understand what is at stake and what's going on with each voting cycle. And keep in mind, their numbers are exponentially increasing with each high school graduating class throughout the country. For these current graduates, collaborating with each other, regardless of their differences, is not only normal, but expected. They have grown up with diversity, so it's natural for them to embrace it rather than to fear it. They're used to pursuing and sharing knowledge, not conspiracy theories and misinformation or altered realities. So, say what you may about social media, but the Gen Z generation can debunk a lie, fraudulent narrative, and expose a phony identity within seconds. The thing that autocrats fear most, aside from the rule of law, is transparency. So if you intend to debate a Gen Zer, you better bring your A-game to the table because they will challenge and expose your ignorance. Also, let's mention a tangible impact that's happening in Washington. This comes from research provided by the Pew Research Center in 2022. About a quarter of the voting members of the United States House of Representatives and Senate are racial or ethnic minorities, making the 117th Congress the most racially and ethnically diverse in history. Overall, 124 lawmakers today identify as Black, Hispanic, Asian Pacific Islander, or Native American. And this represents a 97% increase over the 107th Congress of 2001 to 2003 which only had 63 minority members. Now, these kinds of shifts are also happening locally. Therefore, this and future generations are answering your question 
as to impact. I'm now reminded of a discussion I heard with Maxwell Frost, the first Gen Zer elected to Congress at the age of 25. He talked about the importance of keeping young adults active as citizens and involved in the politics affecting the quality of their lives so that when election time rolls around, we don't have to convince them to vote. We just have to remind them to vote. Thank you, Gloria, for the past two episodes that provided content and context and I feel, above all, inspiration. It was a heavy lift, and we thank you for your expertise and guidance. As we stated at the beginning of each of these two episodes, a major focus should always be on the children, the quality of their future lives. As always, sincere thanks to Alan Contino, executive producer and chief engineer of Delirium Networks, to Nancy Gage and Anthony Bias for the graphic designs on the website and podcast. And lastly, our thanks to each of you for joining us. I am Jorge Prosperi, and you have been listening to Counter Voices. <laughs>